Hello, it's CyberGrindings podcast, and uh, today our guest is uh, Mark Cochran from London, United Hello Kingdom. Hello from London. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Mark is a bookbinder and book designer and book artist, uh, or I guess I will ask Mark to describe himself a bit better. And my co-host uh, joining us from Moscow is uh, Pavel Voronin. Hi. I had an interesting uh, discussion if you can call it that, about um, adhesives. And um, the person got a little bit irate, saying, yeah, you're so pedantic. It, it, get, it get, get very hot and very fast with adhesives. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I said, well, exactly. I, I said, well, you know, I, I am pedantic because adhesives is the, the umbrella term. You know, we've got PVA, we've got paste. We've got animal glues. We've got synthetic adhesives. We've got so many different sorts of adhesives, Crucel G, et cetera, et cetera. They're not, it isn't glue. Glue is made from animals. It's not gelatin. Gelatin, you know, there's always, you know, fist gelatin adhesive. So, and the person, oh no, it's, it's glue. And I'm going, okay, you go to a woodworking studio and you ask for glue, you will get an animal derivative gelatin adhesive. You won't get PVA. Because PVA is PVA. You ask for PVA in a woodworking studio, you get PVA. If you ask for a nail, you get a nail. If you ask for a screw, you get a screw. It's exactly the same. So you can tell all my students because they go adhesive. <laughs> I wanted to ask you one more question about your students. Have you ever co uh, collaborated with any of them? Because bookbinding can sometimes seem a lonely business. Um, collaboration. Um, I do collaborate. Um, I have collaborated with a couple of students. Um, not very much because I, 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 I encourage the students themselves to collaborate with themselves, their peer group. Because if I actually collaborate with a student, the other students might get slightly miffed at that. And they say, well, why are you working with them, not me? So again, I have to create a, a parity with, with the students. But I do collaborate. I collaborate with artists, with poets, with sculptors, with forensic entomologists, all sorts of things. I mean, what, one of the interesting projects I had as far as collaboration was working with the uh, Natural History Museum here in London um, about burying books. And this is where it was part of a scientific approach, actually. Uh, do you know what a, a forensic entomologist is? Somebody who looks at dead bodies and then looks at the pupa and the insects and everything around that body to, you know, to suss out how long that body's been there. And I was working with somebody that did that with the Metropolitan Police and also worked with the body farm in Texas, which is a great thing, not for the squeamish, I hasten to add. Um, to see what would happen to books that were put in similar situations because obviously insect infestation works in a similar way with the natural products that are found in books, the adhesives, the papers, the cloths, the leathers, etc. So that's where the buried book series started from. So yeah, I collaborate with a wide field of people. And if you think about the act of bookbinding anyway, you are collaborating, albeit from a distance, perhaps a physical distance or a timeline distance, you're collaborating with the author, with the illustrator, with the people that made the paper. You're collaborating with all these different people. And automatically, it is a collaboration, maybe an unknown collaboration, but it is a collaboration. So again, you know, it's again, I, I look at this from a very, with very wide vision. Um, yeah. I collaborate why not and i think education is a collaboration anyway you know you, unwittingly if you are giving people information you're sharing what you're known you're doing everything surely that is a collaboration it's a sharing of skills it's a sharing of understanding of ethos um you know it's as much listening as showing and doing I've got to understand where the student's coming from. The student's got to understand where I'm coming from. So all these different things. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Thank you. So, Pavel, do you have anything else to add or should we move to workshop tour? 
I have lots of questions, but I can't wait to see the books. <laughs> well, I, I have to be honest, there aren't that many books in the studio because I sell them. Is it okay if I just have a quick um, couple of minutes break? Yeah, sure. sure. Thank you very much indeed. I'm just... You too. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. I'll, I'll get some tea as well. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's not necessarily tea. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I just just remembered one thing about education. It's about, it is about empowerment. It's about giving people skills. A little while ago, I was working in India in a leper colony, and it's about trying to be flexible with um, with the students. Because if you're teaching somebody to sew and they've got no fingers, you've got to suss out a way of getting them to hold to be able to hold a needle to sew a book up, and. Um, Eventually, I, we, we managed to sort out that if the guy used a mattress needle, which is a needle about this long, he could just hold it just in that part of his hand and he was able to sew. So it's, again, it's about empowerment for people. And one of the things about leprosy is it's where I was working. It's this, it basically, it was a village started by one person, his wife and three dogs. Um, uh, they've now got hospitals and all sorts of things there. It's a remarkable place. They, um, because they need to be to check what's happening with the leprosy, they have so many x-rays taken that they've got these mountains of x-ray plates. And I'll show you one of mine, which is up there somewhere. Um, and what they do, uh, say they were, you know, what can we do with them? Well, they were putting them in windows and all sorts of things. And I said, well, could you use them for the covers of notebooks, spiral bound them? And they went, do you think people would go for that? And I went, in Europe, they would love it. Yeah, absolutely. The carb, the gothic. And they went, and they're now doing a roaring trade, <laughs> selling notebooks with x-ray plates. That's absolutely superb, but there you go. I, I once had an experience of teaching uh at a facility for uh, for disabled people in, in Moscow. Uh -huh. And uh, it, it was an uh, inspiring experience and educational experience for me because you, uh, yeah. every, every person is, is a different person and uh, they, they have their own, uh, uh, how to say, uh, they are their own person. You don't need to yeah, say anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you yes. need to find the, you need to find the personal approach to to you need to find the personal approach to each student. But uh, yeah. in this case, it's even more important and it's even more uh, yeah. uh, interesting for the teacher because uh, you need to invent some things and uh, uh, it it makes you a better teacher and a better bookbinder. So yes, uh, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that I mean, was I, a very important experience for me. Yeah, I mean because uh, because uh, because I'm. I've, I'm dyslexic. Um, when I was at school, um, nobody really knew what the problem was. So I was in and out of the ordinary class and in what we would, uh, you know, student, a, a class specifically for students with additional needs, basically people with, um, who perhaps think or have different life experiences to ourselves. So for me, school was a very different place because for some subjects I would be with my classmates mainstream and for other subjects I would be in the special place um, with my other classmates. So for me, I was backwards and forwards. So I understand exactly where you're coming from. You know, each is an individual and you just have to find that one point, that thing. And once you found it, you can work with them and they understand that you understand that you know. And for them, they're normal. Everybody's normal for themselves. That's it. It's just our conceptual preconception of what normal is. And once you understand that everything is normal, everything's normal. You have to agree there is a certain irony that you, as a dyslexic person, you connected to the world of books. Yeah, well, this is one of the reasons why I started my career uh, installing Art Deco toilets. Um, <laughs> you'll find that there is, a, you know, a built up to it slowly. But again, it was it was not. This is why when when I went to see the exhibition uh, by accident, 
and started with Gilbert and George, two performance artists who were, they said, right, we are living books. I understood it straight away. And with books of hours, they're beautifully illustrated. And I was looking more at the illustrations. And then um, as I sort of started understanding, started this project, everything started clicking into place. And I was very fortunate in that um, I was able to have help uh, with uh, my dyslexia when I was at art college. Because when I went to art college, they said, ah, right, okay, we know what this problem is. Not a problem, we know what, what's happening here as opposed to my school, which was a small country school, but didn't have any, they did, you know, it just wasn't on the agenda then. And so that was a great help for me. And um, uh, it, it was, it was a, the drip, drip, drip of understanding what the book was, but not realizing that one could have a career, work, be expressive using the book. And that wasn't until Paris. It was, that was my road to Damascus moment. It was that, this is where I, I, I understand this. So there we, there we go. Anyway, right, shall we um, go outside? Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Studio 5. Uh, this is where I work. It's called Studio 5 because it is Studio 5. Um, it's a nice sort of back part of London, southwest London, in a very beautiful place called Barnes. Um, I work in an environment of old muse properties, and we've got ceramic artists, stained glass artists, recording studios, what else? Uh, art studios, we've got uh, drapers, milliners, and we've also got an aeroplane going overhead. It's London, it's a city, it's like this. All right, this is Studio 5, and let's go in. Um, it's a small place, as you will probably realize. Um, I've got a few, a few trays of type. <laughs> Because uh, I do a lot, uh, quite a lot of printing, and then as we go into the studio, I'd love to be able to say it's usually tidier. This is tidy. Um, you know, I've got the basic stuff. I've got a small little guillotine, coffee machine, guillotine, uh, board chopper, uh, some more trays of type, and then cloth, um, inks, print stuff, uh, cupboards with adhesives in, uh, print racks, and then up on the what grandly called mezzanine level. Okay, um, that's that's a nice storage. That's cool, isn't it? Uh, grandly called mezzanine level, uh, book cloths, uh, dead parrots, kimonos, uh, all sorts of stuff, printing machines. Um, I also cloth. saw some uh, Loewet uh, uh, vertical plows there. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we've got a vertical plow. Uh, then I've got uh, various other plows. You can just see one up there in the top skylight. I've got about four or five um, sort of uh, plows with presses because uh, people need to know the traditional way of doing things and, of course, the modern way of doing things. Um, <laughs> and then uh, this, is, this is where my bench, this is where I'm usually working and doing my stuff. Got a small um, press just down there for making miniatures. Tiny, sweet little thing. Oh, that's, uh, that's really that's nice. It. it is, isn't it? It's made out of tank parts from the Czech Republic. That's cool. Um, <laughs> And then I've got a copy press just there as well, which is good for cool work. Uh, the usual sort of uh, presses. Um, sewing machine. Well, you've got to. Um, then this is sort of work that's ready for collection and commission work that I'm working on at the moment. So I've got about six or seven commissions I'm working on. Yeah. Um, this is uh, some restoration work that I've been doing. You know, there is an old book just to show that I do work on old books and do do restoration work. Um, this is, uh, we'll look at this perhaps a little later on, but this is one of the cabinets with some of my work in and uh, some books which I think are quite nice and important, but we'll look at those later on. I saw some Russian there. Well, just that, that. It says, art for children. Yes, it's because we're all children in art. <laughs> I'm trying to get out of that one desperately. Um, you'll see splashes of paint everywhere because we do paint. Um, then uh, it's, there's norm used pre C19. Um, I perhaps have work areas for four people, but that's going to be turned down to two people now. 
Um, then uh, we've got the you know, storage and cabinet. This is Cuisine Corner with the microwave that a lot of conservators will be very familiar with. Um, <laughs> then uh, just this is a, at the moment, but I, you know, it would obviously be cleared down, but this is sort of the, the working environment. So I do have work that's, um, you know, sort of around where I feel that a place should be stimulating, should be interesting. This is stretched paper ready for an artist book that I'm working on at the moment. Um, and that's a large sheet of stretch paper. Pressing boards, foam, a big sign that says books, which disappears up into the roof. <laughs> More book cloth. You can never have enough book cloth. Uh, frame, uh, print racks. Uh, the occasional birdcage. Why not? Uh, is, is it for, for birds or for something else? Very small students that misbehave. <laughs> um, then a uh, blocking machine. Uh, light boxes, um, plan chests. I've got about five plan chests knocking around. Um, a ukulele <laughs> that I'm, a ukulele that I'm working on at the moment, decorating a ukulele. Um, a friend and student of mine gave this for my birthday present. Make your own ukulele. So I've been working on that, as if I'm not busy enough. Uh, typewriters. I love typewriters. Oh look, another birdcage with a woodpecker attacking a dirty old brown book. Conservators will now be wincing. Um, posters that I've managed to acquire from events I've attended. That's Man Booker Prize for Fiction 2005. Big poster. Did manage to liberate that. Uh, screen printing kits. More typewriters. More presses. Uh, work that I'm working on at the moment. Just This is very recently being finished. Uh, this is a triptych. And this is... Uh, so i just open this up. This is... Um, more about looking at uh, different aspects of the book. If we look at the history of the book with diptychs, triptychs and polytics, this is a contemporary uh, sort of manifestation of that. Um, and again, we've got a little bit of collage work happening down here, which is perhaps what I, people may know my work is about. A manipulated um, antique-ish photograph of somebody, I don't know who they are. If it is your relation, do phone in. Um, some more down here as well. Uh, books for research, uh, very important. Um, what else? That's about the studio. More stuff down there, and that's about about it. That's Studio Five in a nutshell, because it is basically in a nutshell. It's a very small place, but we do try and pack it in. Well, small but functional. I can't, I can't imagine more than one, uh, one person working there at a time. And you said four people working there. Yeah, well, I'm, I do have specific, the, the, there used to be before I started spreading out because you no know, students and there would be four working places in here. Because if you go to an average bindery in London, for example, the most expensive thing is space. And it is a luxury to have bench space. So what I do um, I, uh, quite purposefully is to say, right, fine. You know, if you outspan your arms, that's the maximum distance of your work area. That's as far as you can work. So if, literally from, you know, fingertip to fingertip, you don't need any more. And, you know, it's about your outstretched hand out. That's the size of an average work area. Everything else you're not going to be using. So, and it also teaches the students to keep their benches tidy to be able to work with space because you know so many people oh there isn't enough space well tidy up you know that's the answer <laughs> um then there's under storage as well with lots of other stuff happening so that's about it and this is my uh, laying press single screw laying press which is just down underneath the bench here and um that's it finishing equipment and all sorts of stuff is you know it's in drawers it's in cupboards it's you know, everything's where it should be, bins full of leather. Yeah, this is about it, really. Uh, what is the oldest tool in your uh, workplace? I think uh, the press looked antique. Oh, um, what's the oldest piece of kit in the studio? Yeah. Ooh, that's a very good question. The presses are quite old. Um, I'd say they're about 120 years old, the nipping presses. 
Um, this press, I've got a press down here in pieces. This is a standing press. You can see the top platen here and the base platen here. That's a big standing press that I got from London College of Printing. And for those of us who are familiar with the Arthur Johnson Manual of Handbook Binding, when he mentions a uh, standing press, that is the press that was photographed. That's about, I'd say that's about 100 years old as well. But I suppose looking at some of the hand tools I've got, they would be perhaps some of the oldest, um, which are lurking down here. So I don't know if you can just see down here, but for yeah. those of us who say he doesn't do any tooling, I do. That's a, let's, you know, these handle letters here are at least 120 years old, at least that, that I do know. Um, you know, stuff was made to to last and, um, you know, looked after, they will do. Um, yeah, so that's that's basically it. Some of the type is quite old as well. I mean, you know, we go on to trays of type, various point sizes, various faces and things. But that's it, and, you know, basically that's it. I mean, work hanging from the print racks is varied and many. Um, the newest piece of kit I suppose I've got is, well, barring the computer is the uh, bore chopper. Mm -hmm. which is a nice piece of kit to have. Um, and maybe, the, maybe the guillotine. I'm always impressed how people uh, uh, fit in the, the board chairs, <laughs> board chirpers in their small workshops. And uh, sometimes yeah. it's, it's really, really, really small space. Like uh, we had a, a podcast with Eliana Gomez, uh, a book re a restorer from, from Harlem uh, here in the Netherlands. And uh, uh -huh. uh, she she has a total of nine square meters uh, in, in her uh, studio, and there's a, a board chair there. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and and that's just she uses it for for so many things. Uh, she stores uh, stuff inside the under the under the table. Yeah. She works on the table when she when she needs to do some work and uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that nature dislikes a vacuum. And you ask any bookbinder, any artist, they will quite happily fill that space. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I, I occasionally I purge the studio of things that I know I haven't used for a long time. And I think I will throw that away. And, of course, a week later, you're looking for it. <laughs> And you think, I know it's around here somewhere. I saw it. And then you remember throwing it out. And so, uh, you know, you've got all these different uh, things lurking around that will maybe one day be very useful, but probably never. So there we go. So, yeah. So I am uh, sort of don't like throwing things out, basically. I guess it's really yeah. hard to, to, to keep all the things when you have a studio for 17 years. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, I, you know, I look around at uh, what I've got. When I first started, I literally had a stool, a radio, and a very small table with a couple of hand tools. And that was it. You know, I didn't get any grants or anything. I started with nothing and um, sort of um, built up from there. I mean, it's a question of taking over the world sometimes, I feel, but there you go. So that's, that's that. Um, in the bookcase, some of my uh, sort of favorite books. I've recently just got a couple of books that I've uh, borrowed from a collector that um, when I was doing my sort of online summer exhibition, again in Facebook. So those are here ready for collection. Um, and that's, that's about it really. That is the basis of Studio 5. Can you show us some of the books? Yeah, this is part of my uh, buried book uh, sort of um, ongoing thing where I, I'm sort of burying books uh, all the time. And this just shows the beautiful sort of shapes, contours and colours that come out of the ground. And I really do, I, I love what happens to the books. And it's almost like an archaeological sort of experiment. And again, all these are sort of books that I make. They are my sketchbooks. They are not, they're not anybody else's books by any stretch of the imagination. I wouldn't do that. And again, you know, you can see how, you know, things delaminate materials change. But, you know, technically it is a book. Yeah. 
the page is still open, they still work, but this is only in the ground for about a month. So you can see that next time you're watching a Hollywood movie and they say, we've just unearthed a 2000 year old book, it ain't gonna look anything at all like Hollywood has it. But again, um, you know, it's about using different stuff and that sort of thing uh, about uh, yeah, taking it forward. And then, you know, Barry books, the perhaps the more experimental view of the book, uh, sort of looking at it from the perspective of uh, reforming and reshaping something. And this is buried and it's, you know, rigid in that shape now. And again, you know, I suppose one could say, you know, from a rest restorer's or conservator's perspective, they'd be going, no. But if you're suffering, you know, water damage <laughs> books and things like that, well, that's how it's done. And of course, all these books are frozen once I get them out of the ground. Yeah. Um, defumigated to kill any uh, microorganisms, etc., etc., etc. That was my question. How do you store them? Because they are, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so this is it. But it, it is one of these things, you know, how far, you know, you can go with things. And there is, I believe, a certain element of beauty of something else in there. And I, I really do like it. This one is yet to be cleaned. We can still see the evidence of the uh, soil on there. Yeah. This is great. But then you, I was wondering what put you on this track because uh, all uh, this reminds me of Cuthbert uh, Bible, the Irish book they found in the bog, early medieval. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, this is one of the things. Books can be remarkably strong, depending on the environment. I mean, the for example, you know, it's um, so many books or parts of books are kept are being found are being unearthed that are hundreds, if not centuries, if not thousands of years old. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls is just one example. And, you know, they are remarkable things. And this is, if you like, this is a hark back to the, the Dead Sea Scrolls with perhaps within a contemporary context. Now, for example, this book here, this is one that um, I finished working on a couple of years ago. And this book was buried on the South Island of New Zealand and it went through two earthquakes. And what I've done is I've made a little box for it so you can see it because, you know, I like it to go on exhibition. And if we take the perspex cover off, we can begin to see, you know, see it more in its, in its light. Now, you'll notice that there's a hole here, here, and part of the spine is missing here. That's basically because the person who buried it, buried it, one of my students, and then um, it was dug up by a farmer, by a farmer using a garden fork. And those are the three holes made by the, made by the tines of the fork going in. I mean, what are the chances of that happening? We don't know, but we can see from it. And it's also, you can see we've got gold leaf and things happening in there because there's a Japanese ceramics repair technique called Kintsugi, which basically a rough translation is uh, lacquered gold. And when they repair ceramics, they repair it using lacquer and gold leaf and gold powders and po uh, platinum powders to highlight the repair. So I thought I would do the same with all the knocks, bumps and lumps with this. And this is number two in the series. So we can open the book up. And so it opens. And we can begin to see the inside of it as well. And we can see where the gold leaf, you can actually physically see where those holes have gone through and punctured into the text block. And again, you can see that the gold leaf has been laid into those puncture marks, again, highlighting it, but you know, it stands up. It is a book. It is recognizable very much as a book, but you know, in a, in a different format, in a different way that perhaps we're used to seeing. But again, you know, what is, you know, what is the book? You know, this is sort of perhaps harking back to a bygone age and you know the archaeology of things and again it's taking it back to perhaps its natural state so again this is where you know conservation cross fertilization from different other arts and crafts and other disciplines can be brought together in the one object which of course is the book so you know it's not about just you know leather raised bands bit of gold tooling there is a lot more to it, as I perceive the book to be anyway. And I suppose one could argue uh, it, the pages have been, you know, sealed together with various enzymes and everything else. And you can see all that beautiful texture happening just there, perhaps.
and arguably so it's not a book it's only got two parts to it but this part and this part well one could argue then that this is not a book and this is a facsimile of a romano british diptych beeswax carved out wood panels and everything else now that to me is as much relevance and has as much meaning and as much depth as this and this this and that so there are the, the this is where i can see definite parallels definite crossovers and a definite continuation of the medium and in fact if we were to think of these three being together where we do have the scroll the diptych and the contemporary artist book then we can see that very definite continuation happening so that's that's that bit should we look at some other books that's a good question by the way what's what's the book once again we're returning to it and yeah. uh, we had discussions with pavel that's as well because is it a book when when it's it's a collection of wax plates uh, uh, stitched together i guess it is a book yes of course it is yeah i mean it's a three-dimensional articulated structure that has surfaces that are capable of either carrying having or being written into or transmitting information that is exactly the same yeah as one of my sketchbooks it functions in the same way. Okay, this is a simplified, simplified version. One could argue that this diptych, this sorry, this triptych here, is another variation on that. For me, that is a book. It's articulated. It carries words. It carries imagery. It opens and it closes. That, for me, is a book. It is as valid. It is as relevant. In fact, probably more so, because this again is a crossover piece. And likewise, if we were to think about a contemporary diptych, which is this little chapette here, we can see that this is a two surface. It's carrying information. It's got two planes. It's got a front and a back, and the book stops here. I don't know if you can see that, but it is available on my Facebook page. The book stops here. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, that is that, that for me is as relevant as anything else. So it's like when we see a painting and it's got a book in it. You know, the artist has painted a book. That is a book. It's not a real book. It's a painting of a book, but it is recognisable as a book. Is it a book? Well, yes, it is a book. I mean, OK, we could go down the surrealist route and say this is not a book, but let's, you know, leave that for the time being. Perhaps something that's a little bit more recognisable as a book would be this little chap here. Now, I was talking about clay and using clay. Now, if you want to get texture, physical texture into your work, use clay. And this is a mixture of uh, soils, clays from uh, Singapore and an air-dried modeling clay. So you can really feel and see those different textures happening. So that's the clay uh, Adeline sent to you? Yeah. So that's what it's about. It, it ties in with the work. And what I'll do is I'll just stand this book up very carefully because it isn't mine, of course. It is a customer's. But if we look at the spine of the book, can you see how we've got these multiple raised bands? Yeah. Okay, and it looks like a ceramic pot, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, so if we look at a ceramic pot that's got a very similar, and you'll see where the inspiration comes from, this is a ceramic pot. And you can see those self-same lines there. So again, when we're talking about inspiration, where do ideas come from? They come from everywhere, all the time, every time. You know, it's about being open. And I suppose if we were to look at another book, which is perhaps slightly more traditional. That's a very important uh, uh, moment, a very important point, because uh, uh, for sure, there are bookbinders who want to follow the traditions of uh, yes, 17th of and 18th century, and they are yes, in, in, in their own right. But then it's it's okay yeah. to to have to take inspiration from anything, and it's okay to experiment. And uh, of some, course it is. Unfortunately, there are people who who would say no, you should follow the tradition. But yeah. uh, well, in that case, I'd like to know: do they do they use a horse to go to work every day? <laughs> yeah. Do exactly. they do they do they have diphtheria? Do they have rickets? Uh, you know, you've got to draw a line in a parallel somewhere. If there wasn't experimentation yeah. and people moving forward, yeah. we'd still be living in, well, naked, running around, gathering berries. You know, one has to live in today's age for the future. But 
we have the luxury of being able to pick and choose the past that we want to live in. So this is perhaps a, uh, a more of a, a book that people may recognize in simple materials. I tend not to put labels and things on the spine because the collectors know uh, where their, everything is in their collections. And if we were looking at the ceramic book, we can see it has got a label, but there's no text on it. It is just an inlay panel of yeah. the ceramic mixture. And again, on the spine of the box here, we can see we've got this tooled impression. And this is a book, this is full leather. It was uh, not a trolling tool or, or something like that you used to, to, to make this impression or, or what, what? If I told you, I'd have to kill you. Because <laughs> um, I, actually, I actually haven't published this yet. Okay. And I, I used to tell people and then I'd find an article with their name after it using my technique. So okay. I'm very, I'm, I got slightly miffed at that, as you can imagine. But basically, yeah. it's a very simple, it's a traditional way of working, but with a contemporary lilt. And then the end papers are flottage papers. Again, colors match and everything works. And again, this is working a collaboration. That's something you do a lot with, with your works. I mean, this sort of paper. Um, not a lot. I mean, I do use it, but I do, as I do use other forms of paper. And it ties in with the life of the Mayfly. I mean, for example, in the previous book we were just looking at, if I can just close that up, put it back. The end papers for this particular book and the doubleurs are, well, that's not flottage. That's, okay. that's something else. And if you look at it, you can see the outline of ceramic vessels. Yeah. And this is actually slip, colored slip, which I've sealed onto the paper. So it's as if color has dripped from the pots or is dripping onto the pots. And the and again, texture is also reminding of, of uh, handmade pots or something like that. So Exactly, yeah. It is about ceramics. And again, um, you know, when we're looking at the Dubler, I don't know if you can see, but can you see we've got a texture of tooling on there? Maybe you, so can, you, can, you can move the camera a bit away. Yeah, that's much better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we can see that shape there. That's a traditional wheel that I've just impressed into the wet clay. Yeah which is what the ceramic artist did in a you but using different tools and again you know the ceramic artist he labels and titles his work by pressing letter forms into wet clay so i've done that i'm echoing i've drawn inspiration from what's on the inside but i've reinterpreted it in my own way it's not a it's not a copy it's not a follow through it's a reinterpretation it's a different way of looking at it but with similar material manipulation so yeah, I've got no problem. Um, yeah. yeah. And this multitude of, uh, of rice bands is, is sort of eat it from you to all these people who are making five rice bands or something. <laughs> <laughs> I never said that. I never said that. <laughs> I never said that. Um, but again, we can take it another stage. I mean, you know, books don't have to be huge, big and everything else. So I just a minor accident there. Um, in that with, smaller books you can actually have a more of a sculptural context so again we're looking at different material manipulation and the book is a fixed backboard binding so the backboard extends over to, and this is a book about basically uh dark ages sailing ships death on the high sea pageantry kings and queens and all that sort of thing so basically what i've done is i've created a book that's got a sails on it so it looks like an old-fashioned sailing ship. And then we've got these tesserae, which hark back to the pageantry and the flags of a medieval age. And that's just done using a cold gold technique, something similar to what Klimt would have used. So, but again, it's drawing inspiration, not just from other bookbinders, but from people that use the medium gold and using it in a different way. To, to create something completely different with it. Again, you know, there's a little bit of traditional sort of edge decoration there, sort of thing, contemporary gophering, if you like. But again, it's not just slavishly doing what's before because that's the only way there is, and that's how I was taught to do it, and that's all I'm going to do. Um, you know, there's got to be, for me, there's got to be more into it. Um, do you want to look at one more? Yeah, sure. And by the way, that's one of the books you showcased during your uh, summer 
virtual exhibition. So if anyone wants to see a bit more and hear by a bit more about this book, they can go to your Facebook page and look for it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It was a stunning exhibition full of glitches. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but now perhaps we're going to be looking at a book here, which is uh, one of my personal favorites. This is um, it's a big book, as we can see from the size of the box, two tray drop back box. And this for me, um, sort of in a way, uh, exemplifies one of the philosophies I have about the book. Number one, the boxes have got to be well made, obviously, but this is, when he tries to open it, and it's got a, there we go, that's better. So this is a book and it's, a, it's called Shadow Day and Eternity. And it's the work of one of my favorite artists. And this is sort of a homage if you like. Um, sorry, I've just pressed a button and I don't know what I'm doing. It's all right, don't worry. And um, it's um, about the work of Joseph Cornell. And I just love the work of Joseph Cornell. I mean, he does it for me every time. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just put this on the bench, if I may. So everything's going to go a bit squiffy for a while. Okay. Yeah. It's a big book. <laughs> it's a very big book. And I wish I had a tripod and everything. But anyway, um, for those of you who are not familiar with the work of Joseph Cornell, um, he is very often cited as the artist's artist. Um, his work is uh, sublime. It is beautiful. He helped organize the first surrealist exhibition in America. A very influential and extraordinarily gifted person. Never traveled outside of his own location, but he traveled the world with his work. And what I've done is I've created the work of Cornell. Now, in a lot of Cornell's work, not a lot, but some of his box art, he uses sand. And I don't know if you can see, but I've got sand in the cover as well and we can see oh, that yeah, line yeah. working there yeah absolutely <laughs> okay so what this does it sort of echoes what's happening and this will take a few minutes to sort of decant from one area to the other so this is what i mean about books working both upside down and the right way the only way to actually get this to work is to turn the book upside down and we can see how this is sort of going out of here yeah so you are making the the user of the book to break the rules as well <laughs> yeah exactly to engage with it you've got to work with it so that's that's that one there and i've got a beautiful reflection of myself just now and so that's doing that now if i turn it the right way up or a perceived right way up we can see how the top sand will start to disappear and this really does give a a beautiful sense of movement and it really is something else and i hope this is all in focus i'm doing this freehand of course yeah we but can see moment, that it moves yeah oh yeah but it's the light catching the particles and then as the sand slowly disappears and it is doing its stuff you see this beautiful shape appearing and then this eye that looks back at us reappearing oh that's very poetic it's beautiful isn't it Look at that. <laughs> I love it. Fun. Yeah, it's great. I, know, I love it. I love it. I just one of these things. So that's that. But when we go into it, and of course, you know, it's got sonem bands. It's got a little bit of edge decoration. But we can see this bricolage work as well, because again, that's what Cornell worked in. He was a self-taught artist by and large. He did attend the evening classes and stuff, but he was self-taught. So this is echoing his sort of working style. And if we go into the book, again, we get this follow through with colors, with various different elements happening, so that when we open it, we end up with the work very similar, but in, similar, inspired by what he did. So Eternity means, you know, everything is going into eternity. But again, we're looking at this in reverse. The foreground is actually smaller than the background. We can see how that collage works there. And then we've got the profile of Cornell in shadow. So that's that one there. Now the backboard, I have to say, is my favourite um, because I, I play with this quite often, though it is available, of course. This is um, a backboard and it's basically a thing of sand and you can actually move the sand. Oh, wow. So that every time you open the book, you form a new and completely different book in itself. 
So it's a different book every time. And then when we go into the uh, back to blur pages, we can see that continuation happening, asymmetry within the end papers. And that's Shadow Day and Eternity, Joseph Cornell. So again, it's about taking inspiration. It's about looking at the work and not, I mean, if I were to put that book in a full leather binding with a bit of gold tooling of five raised bands, it would be wrong. It would be completely wrong. So by treating it as a contemporary work, by physically looking at it, touching it, feeling it, and it being inspired by the work that's in the text block, then what you have, of course, is you have the holistic approach to bookbinding and book arts. Is this book art? Well, I suppose it is. And of course, the original book came with a DVD, whatever it is. So that's in there as well. So again, you know, that's a manipulation of materials and manipulation of an art or way of working with art and design. And we can just see that the box closes down like that. I like boxes. Um, <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. So that's, that's basically it. Um, would you like to look at one more? Yeah, but Absolutely. Uh, let me just say that this was amazing. Gzamku Sperk, if I ever saw one. This was mesmerizing. Wow. That's, that's, Thank that's, you. That's just no problem, no problem. Um, if we think of what we've just looked at, and we think of that moving sand, and then you think about concrete poetry. Now, concrete poetry is a number of different things to a number of people, but it is the possibilities of the letter and the word forming and reforming to create a new visual text. Now, the visual text does not have to be in type. It can be in anything. So what, what is the step? What is the next logical thing to do? Or perhaps to create a book or book object which works with that. So this is a book we can see. It's a, it's a diptych. It's got two surfaces. It opens. But within the text block, the single page, if you like, we have sand. So again, what I'm exploring is how the sand keeps shaping and reforming. And if we were to look at those in an abstract way as lines of type, as words, of letters, again, every time we use Pick This Up, we have a different vista, a different way of looking at this single page. And all of a sudden it becomes not a static thing, but it becomes a kinetic book, a kinetic text, which is able to you know, revolve and evolve around the person who's using it, understanding it and engaging with it. So that's a simple form. So that's a combination of box making, of book binding, book arts, and again, about understanding how books and art can work together and that there is a synergy within the form and the function of the book. So I'll just put that to one side. That's good. That's, uh, yeah, okay, right, fine. Exotic tours. Um, in today's age, it's the cult of the selfie. And for me, the box also becomes an extension. And again, this is on, on the Facebook summer exhibition. Uh, the box becomes an extension of the binding itself. It's rather like the frame for a painting, if you like. It's the, the theater curtain. Just as the play or the orchestra strikes up, that curtain opens, the safety curtain opens, and we get into those lush things. We get this idea of what's happening. And then we can open the box up. And again, my box making, there we go. And we open this up into exotic tours. Now, when I've traveled abroad, I see many groups of people going around exhibitions, going around cultural buildings, architecture. And what they're doing is they're not looking at the architecture, they're looking at themselves in front of the architecture through the camera, through the selfie. It's the cult of the selfie. So we can see that with this, again, this binding is a full cloth binding. That's animal friendly to our vegan friends. Um, again, this is hand painted, hand sprayed. We can see that again, it's this 360 degree view. And you'll see that all the images and things, they have overlays, collage work that's been put over them. You can basically see that where it is the cult of the selfie. So we have some quite well-known works of art and lost art in this as well where we start exploring sort of the tour, where again, we're looking at how we don't look at the work, we look at ourselves first, or themselves first, and the exhibition or the tour <coughs> becomes something that is forgotten, 
it's not important. It's about how we see ourselves within that environment. So again, we go through this and again, we've got, you know, crude popularism, all sorts of text that revolves around it, the myth. And again, you know, you've got icons in art and design, culture, history, the environment, and it's all sort of lost to the cult of the selfie. Every time I go to, to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, it uh, amazes me how, how many people are making say, uh, selfies in front of the uh, Nightwatch uh, or other yeah. uh, famous paintings. And uh, uh, my question always is not, not, not the mouth question, just, just something I, I speak to myself. Uh, why would you do that? Because uh, uh, you, can, you can have a digital copy of the painting on the web. You can yeah. have the pictures of you anywhere else. What's, you can buy what's, a T-town. What yeah. what gives what what this photo what this selfie gives to you and uh, what it brings well, what to it, what it is it, what I believe it is it's a self-imposed form of gosh aren't I educated look where I am you can tell where I am because you know you can see where uh, uh, I I'm I'm in front of and look at this wonderful piece of art but I'm more important it's a very selfish 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 attitude I think. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, again, it's about education and people's expectations and how they feel that they should see the world. But less about that. That's more of a philosophical thing. Um, so this is uh, Surviving Material. And this is a uh, hand-decorated book cloth. Again, it's not just leather that we can bind and decorate. We can actually use book cloths and we can use all sorts of things in our material. So again, this is about material manipulation. And it's also about seeing you know different things in different ways and being able to manipulate all those materials and again this is a drum leaf binding and again this is using silt screens stencil work hand painting collage work again and this is basically about surviving it is about looking at how images when you start to distort them what is seen and what disappears what survives in the eye and how we can, you know, um, work with a selection of titles, if you like, that uh, keep uh, a sort of um, modernist, perhaps figurative way of working within a very simple format of what material survives. And this again, is also this is also a psychological experiment because uh, our brains are hardwired to find some patterns and. Uh... Yeah, exactly. You think there, should, there is a narrative, there's an obvious narrative, and the narrative is created with the imagery, and also the way that the uh, colour has been applied and that sort of thing. But what it is, is you can actually physically see, as the <clears throat> silkscreen is used, the image degrades, and you start to lose detail within that uncleaned um, sort of uh, silkscreen. And Again, it's about you know, what we see, what survives, and, and what we mentally put in its place to create the completed image. So again, it's, it's basically, it's asking you know, question, questions, all sorts of things, you know, why? Why, what is survives? Why does it survive? So again, there is, there's always more than one um, way of looking at work. So yes, I work within the contemporary, traditional way of working, I suppose. And I work within book sculptures, book art, uh, printing, all sorts of things. It, again, it's about a, a very much of a, a holistic approach to the work and to how we can perhaps engage and see different things. And again, you know, my inspiration comes from all sorts of things. Cornell, uh, you know, Peter Blake, the list goes on and on and on. Mel Gooding. Uh, Rothenstein, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's also about, you know, looking at the traditional aspect of the book as well. I don't, I don't just, you know, sort of go, all right, modern, modern, modern. Some of my favorite books are, you know, relatively old. They're relatively, yeah, they're only two, 300 years old sort of thing. So I do look at those and I do gain continued joy and satisfaction at being able to look and share in that sort of, uh, style of work, the antiquity of it, the beauty of it, the essence of what the creators were doing and what they achieved and how I can continue to share in that. 
What do you think about the work of Grayson Perry? Because I uh, look at what in inspires you and uh, you and him seem to have a very similar set of heroes. Um, I think that what uh, Grayson does, it's uh, he's kickstarted ceramics in the UK, that's for sure. Um, but um, he's um, he's very media savvy, and he uses the media. So this is a book about bookworms. I just sort of so bookworms. So it's got holes in it and this is <laughs> and this is for any conservator out there they're now going oh my god but this is bookworms i have something to show you i guess uh, just, <laughs> just just a moment here is the book i i bought in in bucharest uh, beautiful uh, uh some time ago and uh, uh i didn't need the book of course but i wanted to buy it just because it's so it's amazing and uh, it, and you it's it's yep. full of holes, and yeah. you can see it here Absolutely. as well. <laughs> so, um, so, how many, so you bought that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, these are for sale. Uh, if you want to buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that it, it's Grayson Perry. is a very interesting guy. Very media savvy. He has kickstarted ceramics and applied arts within the UK. That's for sure. And it's it's very easy. He's very it's very easy. With he's, he's been doing. Um, art and craft with Grayson Perry during lockdown, uh, yeah. which has been apparent. I haven't watched it, but apparently it was it was well received by people who make arts and craft toilet roll covers and stuff like that. But I think that his his approach is again a very holistic approach. I mean, he's the first person that will say, you know, he doesn't really have any training. Uh, you know, his ceramics training was done in an evening class, and you know, he shows quite happy to talk about his earlier work. And he will, you know, he's a very enthusiastic. And yes, he does gain his inspiration from all manner of things, from antiquity to the contemporary. And he uses them. And he also uses contemporary production methods, contemporary ways of working to and also to um, sort of make his work for now. You know, he's not trying to copy an, a Ming vase. He's doing what he's doing now. And I think that's very, very, very important because a copy will always be a copy. An original is always an original. Oh, that was a good note to finish on, wasn't it? I've got to remember that. <laughs> I also wanted to to show you that uh, this book I, I bought in Bucharest uh, struck a note because of uh, its uh, topic and title. So it's about uh, uh, Nicholas the uh, First, Russian em emperor. <laughs> so, so it was uh, twice as good for me because of the warmth and because of the uh, Russian emperor. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's amazing how you do get that essence of things just being right and being perfect. But yeah, again, exactly. you know. You know, from the conservatives' perspective, they'll be going, oh, it's got to be, we're going to look after this, we've got to do that. But it's beautiful and it has resonance in its own right as it is. Why change it? Yeah. You know, why change it? There is no, yeah. There's no need to change it. You know, it's, yeah, exactly. it's one of those things, yeah. Um, I mean, again, with a lot of my books, I, you know, I have editions of the Illustrated, uh, yeah, the Illustrated London News. And I just love them the way they are. They've obviously been used and they were in a public library at one time. And you know, I get a lot of my um, work from that and I look at the way they've produced and stuff. So yeah, again, you know, it's about looking and seeing and you know, getting stuff sorted out. Look at the way I look after my books. Great, isn't it? Oh, that's the first aid kit, by the way. So yeah. I've got to get that in from a health and safety perspective. That's important. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah. Oh, yeah, especially, yeah. especially when you have lots of uh, sharp things <laughs> around you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Uh, uh, last time you forgot to ask, who would you like us to interview next? Can you can you name uh, some uh, some person who would be uh, as fun to talk to as you are? Um, as fun? Um, I think, and I I think if if I were to suggest anybody. Um, I would not suggest a single person. I'd suggest students who are just starting out on the on this wonderful journey that I'm sort of halfway through. Um, because the students, they're the the future of what 
we're doing and the world that we are in. And I would personally would be very interested to know, you know, where they see themselves when they get perhaps my age or as many years doing what I've been doing and the direction that they see the book, this huge genre umbrella thing, where they see it going in the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 200 years time. Um, because I think they're the important people along with, you know, future collectors, future things. And I think also in sort of interviews and things like that, collectors tend to be not thought about, but they're a very important part of the, uh, the whole uh, world of where we are in that without people that want to engage with what we do, um, you know, want to share and to pass on what we do, what I do would be not important. I mean, Picasso used to say that art is worthless unless it's, unless it's seen by people, you know, so the collectors are very important. And, you know, the, the critics that write about the work that we do um, and disseminate and the journalists that are involved in it, they're vitally important, but they tend to be overlooked. You know, the ma yes, makers are very important. The artists, the creators, whatever, are important. But without everybody else, you might as well be in a closet doing something to yourself very privately. So, you know, it, it's for me, who would I like to see? Students, collectors, curators and critics that's what i would like it would be great to talk to a collector the problem is they tend to be very private people yes the secret is public institutions they have to justify all the money that they have now what, this is between us get them and say look you're a public library i you know ex go with more public get your voice out there um the collection at the vna the um national art library is something else i have to say um and uh, but there are many many more institutions that that do collect the work um there are some collectors who are very happy to talk about their collection um what i will do is i will give you their names privately just in case they say no and i wouldn't want to embarrass them <laughs> by giving the name now and then going no i don't want to do that no yeah, yeah. but yeah collectors very very important yeah that's interesting that that's very interesting and uh, it sort of uh, shifts us out of our box because uh, i was focusing on uh, inviting you know paper makers marblers book binders book restorers mm. Mm. and uh, you you bring absolutely different perspective and uh, that's that's an interesting thing and uh, that's definitely something we should do in in yeah, our future podcast yeah it's I, you know everybody is important everybody has their own identity and their own reason for what they're doing and you know one cannot operate or exist without the other there is that relationship and um yeah i'd be very interested to know why collectors collect what they look for in work and it doesn't necessarily have to be about books or whatever you know where they get their inspiration from to collect you know wh why they do it you know it's, it's something else you know but anyway you asked the question you've got the answer not necessarily the answer you were wanting but you've got an answer Actually, this is a great idea. I would be very interested to uh, interested to hear what collectors mm -hmm. want. Well, uh, yeah, to not say well, they they know what they want, but it's why why they want it, what it what it is. I mean, some collectors, you know, they stamp collectors, for example, they want you know the first or the rarest or whatever it is. Now, with bookbinding and book arts and that sort of thing, it isn't necessarily the first. It's not necessarily they may collect a specific edition of something so many variables I mean, it's wonderful but you know i go around to people's houses and i think well, why have you got that it's awful but you like it why do you like it you know why haven't you got more of my work it's beautiful it's wonderful you know so um 
yeah, I'm very interested in that that side of things. Very interested. Yeah. Okay, we'll try. We'll try to find some some some, some people to you know to agree <laughs> to join our podcast as a guest. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to Mark for being such a, such an amazing guest and showing around his studio and talking about favorite. all these different things. And I also would like to thank uh, our community, community of iBook Binding, and our supporters uh, on uh, Patreon. Uh, uh, we have a, a collection of uh, digitized books there shared with everybody uh, now during the lockdown. So uh, you don't need to become a patron uh, and uh, pay any money to us to access this collection, at least for now. And uh, uh, you still can become a patron, uh, uh, and we would we would highly appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, that's optional. Uh, we will announce our next guest uh, in our future uh, posts on uh, uh, our social networks. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks a lot, Pavel. My pleasure. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. This was great. Yeah. Bye. 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 <laughs> And cut. <laughs> <laughs>